Welcome to the Gut Doctor Podcast, where Dr. Neil Parikh describes GI disorders and answers common questions related to the GI tract. Please note this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We hope you enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, today we'll be speaking with Dr. Viral Oza. He is the Medical Director of Interventional Endoscopy at University of South Carolina, Greenville, and Prisma Health. He's also the director of the Pancreatic Cancer Center. Viral, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Neil. Pleasure talking to you after a while. Yeah, I think it's been over a decade since the last time we 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 talked. Uh, or close to a decade, like I guess, not over a decade. It's close, it's close to a decade, yeah. Close it's been a while. Um, so Viral, today we're going to talk about pancreatic cysts. And we were just talking offline that we get a lot of referrals, a lot of anxious text messages. Um, from primary providers, from family members, whenever anything lights up the pancreas. And I think that's why it's such an important topic because when we think of pancreas and pancreatic cysts, we think of pancreatic cancer. Um, but we're going to try to focus this conversation on pancreatic cysts. So many of our listeners have likely come across pancreatic cysts, either incidentally on imaging, you know, you get a CAT scan or ultrasound. Mm -hmm. And I think they mm -hmm. often confuse both providers and patients. So Viral, how common is it to find a pancreatic cyst? Yeah, so pancreatic cysts, uh, you know, like you alluded to, is something that worries uh, physicians and patients equally um, for a reason. Now, it ha so happens that the prevalence has gone up significantly over the last two decades. So for the listeners who are who've been either practicing since the early 2000s or, or patients who are uh, older, they may have noticed that they're hearing more about pancreatic cysts and pancreatic cancer these days in the news, uh, in the newspapers, the media, uh, and just from other family members saying, hey, they found a cyst on me. And one of the reasons is that our imaging has gotten significantly better. Our MRI machines, our CT scanners have gotten extremely better. Our knowledge about these cystic lesions or pancreatic cysts has also improved tremendously. There's also endoscopic ultrasound, which uh, is honestly getting better by the year almost, it seems like. You know, I do a lot of endoscopic ultrasound or EUS uh, to look at the pancreas. And, and I'll tell you, there's things that I find on there sometimes like, oh, there's a cyst there that's not even seen on an MRI. Um, now, there's different reasons for that, but our, our imaging has gotten better. So we see this a lot more. So our prevalence has gone up from as low as 7% 20 years ago, seven I think it was the estimate be six or seven percent to as high as up to forty percent in some retrospective studies, um, you know, recently published data. So it's been a huge jump um, from that low of a number to that high of a number. So we hear about this a lot. We see it a lot. And you know, you kind of mentioned about pancreatic cancer. Now, pancreatic cysts not all of them lead to cancer, and we'll talk about this. But some cysts can lead to cancer, and that's where the worry arises from. Yeah, I think that's, you touched two major points there. One, modern medicine, right? Our yeah. better diagnostic skills and tools, the more we find things. And the more we find things, the more anxious it can make us both as providers and as patients, especially when it comes to the pancreas. So you mentioned some cysts can become cancerous, some don't. So let's just start broadly right there. And how about we divide this into neoplastic or cancer potential cysts and non-cancerous cysts. Um, yeah. 
So non so neoplasticsis or neoplasia basically means abnormal growth or i.e. cancerous cysts. Um, uh, and then there's non-neoplastic cysts, which are essentially benign cysts. So the benign cysts, we'll address the benign cysts first because relatively straightforward and, and easier to talk about them. Um, there's, you know, three main types uh, of uh, benign cysts. One is the simple, we call the simple cysts uh, that you would normally see. It's, it's a, you know, we call it sebaceous cyst in the skin or something like that, which is just a simple cyst that can happen in the pancreas as well. Those are benign. They don't have any malignant potential. Very difficult to sometimes differentiate on just CT or MRI, a simple cyst from the rest of the other uh, other benign cysts. Uh, so sometimes an EUS with a needle aspiration may be necessary. Uh, another type of benign cyst is a pseudocyst, which is uh, more of a pathologic uh, definition for why it's called a pseudocyst. Now, for those of the listeners that are scientifically inclined, the word pseudocyst literally translates to fake cyst. And the reason it's considered to be a quote-unquote fake cyst is uh, uh, because of a pathologic uh, uh, differentiation and how it looks under the microscope. But for all intents and purposes, a pseudocyst looks very much similar to a cyst. Um, the only difference between simple cyst and pseudocyst is pseudocyst usually happens after an attack of pancreatitis. So if one has had a pancreatitis attack in their history, they may not know they have a pseudocyst until they get a scan like, you know, 15, 20 years later in life or something unrelated. And they see a cyst in their pancreas and turns out it's a pseudocyst that was probably been there for a long, long time. And we're just picking it up. Those don't have any malignant potential. They don't turn into cancer. Uh, they can get larger if you have another episode of pancreatitis, for instance, uh, and they can cause pain and problems uh, from that perspective, but they don't usually turn into a cancer. Um, the other type of uh, benign cyst or non-neoplastic cyst is something called serous cyst adenoma, uh, which is, uh, again, a pathologic different uh, term. Uh, for why it's called a serocyst adenoma. Now, there's some markers that we look for when uh, we do biopsies of these things, uh, but usually the radiologists are able to tell us that, hey, there's something called a central scar or a honeycomb-like appearance. Uh, those are usually buzzwords to uh, to saying this is a serocyst adenoma. And the chance of it turning into a cancer is, is almost zero. Um, there's a 0.01% chance it turns into something bad. But again, the, you know, for all intents and purposes, it, it does not need any follow-up. Uh, it does not ever turn into cancer, rarely, extremely rarely. Um, uh, but those that's those are the three main types of benign or non-neoplastic cysts that you know the listener is probably going to encounter from a day-to-day -day practice. Now, the neoplastic cysts, though, is a little bit more involved. They have a little bit more... Uh, uh, definitions. There's a little bit more diagnostic criteria. Um, the very clear, straightforward one is what we call the pancreatic uh, intraepithelial neoplasia, or sometimes also referred to as PANIN. Uh, that, that basically translates to uh, a cystic lesion that is now starting to have dysplastic change or starting to, to convert into a cancerous, uh, cancerous tissue. Those almost always require uh, surgery. Uh, surgical resection uh, because of the high risk of progression to cancer. There's also malignant uh, cystic lesions such as cystic neuroendocrine tumors. Uh, there's some small cysts that may have uh, something called neuroendocrine tumor growing in them. Now, normally neuroendocrine tumor is a type of a slow growing tumor 
and doesn't usually cause issues. But there are there are cases where they grow quietly and they start they can also spread, and they start causing problems. Now I'll tell you I'll tell you listeners this there's definitely studies going on on can we ablate endoscopically small cystic neuroendocrine tumors instead of sending patients to surgery. So those studies are ongoing, and I'm sure in the next five, six years, we may see some change in movement on that specific type of uh, of condition of cystic neuroendocrine tumors. Are we able to just essentially, uh, uh, in a very simple way to say, cook it? Like, Are we able to just ablate and, and kill that neuroendocrine tumor altogether? Uh, and if the answer is yes, then that would save uh, patients uh, a pancreatic surgery. Then there's uh, of the obvious ductal adenocarcinoma, or what people hear about on on the news and read about it. Uh, those can be malignant. Uh, uh, start off as malignant cysts uh, right off the right off the bat. That's usually rare, and uh, usually they don't present that way. But uh, that is a known phenomenon. The uh, other type of cyst that I usually worry about, which is pre-malignant uh, and have neoplastic potential, are something called mucinous cystic neoplasm, um, which uh, literally translates to a cystic lesion that has cancerous potential and is making mucin actively. Um, and there's so that those patients usually require surgery uh, because of the cancerous potential. Uh, and that's uh, you know that's something that usually happens in in uh, females more than in, than males. Uh, another premalignant type of cyst, and this is probably the most common that uh, the you may see on your path reports or you may see on uh, reports from endoscopic uh, sonographers such as myself. That this is most consistent with what we call IPMN. Now that's an acronym, but the full form is intraductal papillary mucinous neoplasm, which is a mouthful. Yeah, it rolls uh, right it, off the tongue there. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, and there's two separate types in that as well. Now, I'm not going to bore the listener with specific details of the two different types of IPMN, but majority of these IPMNs are what we call branch duct IPMNs. Um, and uh, there's you know, specific features we look for both on CT or MRIs, or even when we're doing an endoscopic ultrasound to try to classify these cystic lesions. Uh, one is size, you know, how big is it? Uh, how thick is the wall of the cyst? You know, the thicker the wall, the higher the concern of some changes happening within the, within the cyst itself. And then is there anything growing inside the cyst? You know, I mentioned cystic neuroendocrine tumor. Sometimes you would see a little growth, and if the endoscopist is able to stick a needle in biopsy that grows, then they might be able to show some change, uh, which would suggest an early tumor and that can potentially be life-saving for the patient if they get surgery. So those intramural nodules or intracystic growths, in, in simple terms, is what we also look for. And then lastly is we look for the appearance of the pancreatic duct, which is a fine tube that lines uh, lines the entire length of the pancreas. And basically the pancreas dumps all the digestive enzymes and juices into this pancreatic duct. And all the juices flow down this duct into the small intestine. So what we're looking for is to see what does it look like? Does it look regular? Is it a smooth appearance? Does it look irregular? Does it look like it's uh, what we call tortuous or kind of uh, moving around a little bit? Is it what is the size of this pancreatic duct? Is it dilated in size or is it relatively normal in size? So those are the types of features we look for, and we worry about 
uh, worry about these cysts if the size is large, if the cyst wall is super thick, if there's something growing inside the cyst, and if the pancreatic duct is is large in size. So those are the four main worrisome features um, that kind of raise our antennas um, in the in the inter interventional endoscopy world, uh, and they should raise antennas of of any GI doctor reading. Uh, reading the reports, uh, CT scan or MRI reports uh, of these patients. Now, Viral, those four features you mentioned, the size, the wall, the growths, the pancreatic duct, is that, obviously those are worrisome features with any of the cancerous or malignant cysts, but those are specifically also for the IPMNs you were speaking, correct? That is specifically, sorry, that is specifically for IPMN, yes. Okay, okay. Um, so for for our listeners, you know, and to keep it simple in, in my non-interventional GI brain, benign or non-cancerous, you're looking at simple cyst, a pseudocyst, or as you said, if, you know, which is transitive fake cyst, after uh -huh. maybe pancreatitis, or the serous adenoma, correct? That is correct. Yep. And then when you once you start getting the the fancier acronyms, you start yeah. saying that this could be potentially something more, you know, they're requiring more investigation. And you mentioned you know, you're an endoscopic sonographer and you mentioned EUS. Can you just quickly, is that really the test now that our listeners who are patients should be thinking about when you're going beyond an MRI or a CAT scan? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. You know, what do we do? Um, should we go straight to EUS or should we do CTs and MRIs? Now, here's the thing, you know, you have to think about a couple of different things when you're thinking about what test to choose. Number one is, availability of the test. Like, is EUS even available around where where you live uh, in your area? If the answer is yes, then you can go on to the second question. Well, is it something that would be affordable? Because it does require anesthesia and it is a procedure and you may not be a great anesthesia candidate. You know, patients may have either cardiac disease or pulmonary disease and putting them under anesthesia may not be an option. Uh, so that's something to think about as well. Now, the test of choice in most cases, once a CT scan has picked up a cyst, is usually the first step is to go to an MRI. The exception to this is if the CT uh, is able to pick up the high-risk features that I mentioned, then in that circumstance, you might want to consider an endoscopic ultrasound uh, to look at the pancreatic cyst because you can biopsy the cyst at the same time. Now, MRIs are ideal because the availability is is fairly um, it's fairly available throughout the country. It's very easily accessible. Um, the the cost wise, there have been studies on EUS versus MRI in terms of cost, and it is uh, comparable. That's actually a little bit cheaper than endoscopic ultrasound because most patients don't require any anesthesia to go through uh, through the MRI scanner. Um, some patients may not be able to get an MRI because they may have something like, say, a pacemaker. There, uh, the pacemaker may not be compatible with an MRI machine. Then, in those cases, you would get an endoscopic ultrasound. Um, but you just have to. It's really case by case, and usually the recommendations will suggest doing an MRI. The American Gastro Association's uh, guidelines that came out a couple of years ago does say that once a CT shows or an MRI shows two or more worrisome features, you should go to the endoscopic ultrasound after that. But if there's no concerning features, then to recommend, they recommend doing an MRI uh, you know, once uh, once a year for a year, uh, and then every two years till, till year five. 
so majority of the guidelines do recommend MRI for that reason because it's easily accessible. It's a little bit cheaper and most patients can get it uh, fairly quickly. So MRI is probably one of the higher yield non-invasive tests. And then Correct. once you're looking at more, you know, diagnostic definitive testing, then you're talking about endoscopic ultrasound, again, pending exactly. availability, pending worrisome features. So um, exactly. obviously for all our listeners, you know, we started the show by saying pancreas, pancreatic cancer, pancreas cysts, the pancreas and problems with pancreas cause a lot of anxiety because we think of pancreatic cancer. And you mentioned earlier that it is pretty rare for solid pancreatic cancer or you known as pancreatic adenocarcinoma to present as a cyst. And I, I just want, as we wrap up our episode, kind of go over that point again, because I think that's an important point for everyone who's listening. Yeah. So, you know, most, it's interesting, most cancers, um, let me make sure I get this, say this correctly. It is rare for pancreatic cancers to start as pancreatic cysts. Having said that, 20% of pancreatic cancers, adenocarcinomas, do start off as this IPMN and the mucinous cystic neoplasm, the word salad I threw out earlier. Yeah. They do start. Do they do start off in those as those types of cysts, which is why we tend to worry about those precancerous cysts. Because if you, if there's no if you don't have any worrisome features, then you know other than keeping an eye on it, there's not much else that we can do in today's day and age. There are some genetic tests out there. There are some genetic markers that can be tested in the fluid that we sent for analysis. But short of that, just from looking at two uh, two separate lesions, it's very difficult to say which one of those cysts will progress uh, to something something worse. So we worry about that just from that perspective, that only you know 20% of adenocarcinomas do start off as cysts, uh, but not majority of them don't. Majority of them uh, do not start off as cysts. Um, but we're just trying to you know, do be proactive in our world to try to see, hey, what if we can pick up even those twenty percent of patients earlier than than we are moving the needle, and then making a difference. Of course, with every patient, every yeah. factors uh, matters. And then I, I do want to throw this out for your listeners that yes, pancreatic cancer does have, um, you know, it is aggressive type of a cancer. The survival rates are not excellent. Having said that, I think this year, 2023's survival data seems to suggest, <clears throat> excuse me, that the uh, survival numbers seem to have gone up to about 12% at five years. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but let, let me tell your listeners that just a decade ago, it was only 5%. So if you think about it, in the last 10 years, we've almost been getting close to tripling our survival numbers, which is, which, you know, does again, like I said, it doesn't sound, it's not a lot. But it has gone up, and I think that's again because of you know what you alluded to earlier, modern medicine. The chemotherapy drugs are getting better. We're making new discoveries, and making a difference in on from the oncology perspective as well. And detecting these cancers early is is really the key in trying to uh, trying to make a bigger difference. Viral, I appreciate that optimistic note. Uh, thank you again for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.